Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. Our last segment today is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have the guys from This Old House, a public television show, on to talk about the work they're doing right here in the city of Detroit. They are working with a family. And Russell Woods bought a land bank home, uh, restoring it, and uh, they're going to tell that story next year on the program. They also came out and took a look at a project that I have been involved in for some time, the the, the restoration of the home where I was born on Detroit's west side uh, that is uh, empty and stripped and abandoned. They were interested in how that was going. So we're going to talk about all of that a little later. You're going to want to tune in and call in and talk about uh, old houses here in Detroit, uh, restoration, rehabilitation, those kind of things. But first, we wanted to talk about uh, medical inequity, price gouging in America and here in Detroit. And if you think of the word EpiPen, it's sort of like Kleenex in the allergy medicine world. It's a brand name that's so widely used that it's synonymous with the product itself. There are no big generic alternatives to EpiPen, leaving room for drug maker Mylan to jack up the price of EpiPen by 500% over a seven-year period. The life-saving epinephrine shot now costs hundreds of dollars for a single use, and this is the second time we've heard of this time of price gouging for life-saving drugs in recent months. Investor Martin Shkreli became famous for doing the same thing with another drug, infamous I should say. Who sets the price for these medications and who regulates the companies when they gouge customers to turn a huge profit? That's where we start our conversation this morning. And joining me uh, to lead that conversation is Allison Kojak. She's the health policy correspondent for National Public Radio. Allison, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so talk about the, the, the price gouging that, that is going on specifically with EpiPen. Uh, it's gotten uh, a lot of, of uh, media attention. Uh, what what is what is driving it? Uh, is it just greed? Is it just the ability to do it, and and the drug maker is not thinking about uh, whether it's pricing people out, or is there is there a more complicated sort of backstory here? Well, I think there's definitely a complicated backstory. I don't want to you know question the morals of the drug company, but they have been raising the price of the EpiPen pretty consistently since they got rights to it uh, in about 2007. Uh The company's called Mylan, and it generally had been a generic drug maker, but it got the right to the EpiPen uh, in a complicated transaction and decided rather than just to continue to sell it you know, at the low price it had been selling for years, it kind of looked around and said, wow, there's no competition for this and everybody uses these. And it really went on a a big marketing campaign and, you know, really managed to boost demand for the EpiPen and all the while just kept jacking up the price little by little, really like 10%, 10%, 15%, 10% over many years to the point where now a two-pack of EpiPens, and you have to buy two, costs $600 if you don't have it covered by insurance. Right. Uh, and and that means that a lot of people uh, can't really afford the, the, the drug. And yeah. it's not a drug that you can sort of say, well, I don't really need that. I mean, if you need it, you, you desperately need it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a life-saving drug. And, you know, it's a sort of complicated thing because a lot of people own them and never use them. But it's sort of like a fire extinguisher or a bike helmet. You you don't really want to find out what's going to happen if you need it and don't have it. So, you know, I talk to people and parents, especially of children who may not be as well aware of how to deal with their allergies or how to properly ask people whether there are peanuts in their lunch or whatever, um, they'll have five or six boxes of EpiPens, which means they have a dozen EpiPens at any one time Uh because they put them at the school and they put them at the summer camp and they put them at the aftercare and they have them at home in the bedroom. And so they're really buying a lot of these. And if you think about people who have either not very good prescription insurance, so they have high payments, or they have really high deductibles. A lot of the new health insurance has like a $5,000 deductible. They could spend all of that on EpiPens. Wow, wow. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Allison Kojak. She is the health policy correspondent for National Public Radio. We're talking about EpiPens and the precipitous spike in the price of EpiPens over the last seven years, 500% to the point where now it costs hundreds of dollars for just a single uh, shot of epinephrine, which of course is a life-saving drug if you need it. Uh, Give us a call. You want to join the conversation, uh, talk about drug prices, talk about drug companies, talk about the architecture of federal regulation of drug companies. Should it look different uh, in order to to try to prevent these kinds of price gouging activities? 313-577-1019 is the number to join that conversation. It's 313-577-1019. Allison, talk about the, the the government regulation, the architecture of government regulation as it pertains to drug companies. Uh, Some people's impression is that it's just wide open, that there isn't any sort of uh, uh, oversight. Is that Mm -hmm. that the case? Well, there's certainly a lot of oversight for drug companies, and that's one of the things people are sort of blaming for the EpiPen price hikes, because what there is, there's no oversight for drug prices. Um, That's all done through negotiations between insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. And the government actually, like Medicare, is not even allowed to negotiate. They just have to leave it to the private companies. Where there is a lot of oversight is on the safety of medications. And in that sense, the government has had a role because there hasn't been approved a good competitor to the EpiPen. There is one competitor on the market, and listeners should know this. It's called the AdrenaClick. Uh Nobody's ever heard of it, so doctors don't tend to prescribe it. But if you are having issues with paying for the EpiPen, you could potentially, you know, ask for the AdrenaClick. Is is this a a source of debate or tension on uh, Capitol Hill? Oh, certainly. uh, About whether there should be more (laughs) aggressive regulation of drug companies? Yeah, there's a lot of debate um, in terms of, one, making it easier to get generic drugs on the market, and number two, somehow controlling prices. And there has been a lot of debate on Capitol Hill about whether or not the government-run insurers, Medicaid, Medicare, Uh should be able to actually negotiate themselves. The government buys a lot of medication because they are the biggest insurer in the country. So they would have some power here. Yeah. there's no, I haven't heard anyone say specifically we should do price controls in that sense. Right. But, you know, in terms of controlling situations like this, either making sure that they can get another drug on the market that would compete or having Medicare or Medicaid 
you know, put the hammer down and lower the price. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Marilyn in Oak Park. Marilyn, welcome to Detroit today. Hello, Stephen. Hi, how are um, you? I just want to say this is the easiest question I've had to answer all year, and it's the first <laughs> of September. Here's the answer. The drug companies control the price of the drugs. That's all there is to it. That's who regulates, or that's who controls the price. As far as regulation, there's no regulation as far as the price. And also, I want to I tell your guests, that as far as getting a generic for that EpiPen, how could how could Mylan come up with a generic overnight with their little ploy to appease people? I don't understand that at all. The FDA needs to step up to the plate a little bit, and who knows what's going on with that. But the drug companies definitely control the price. They are the drug cartel in this country. That's it. Yeah. Bye. Marilyn, thanks very much uh, for that. Uh, Allison uh, Kojak uh, of NPR, uh, address what she was talking about there with this generic uh, uh, that that uh, that Mylan has been able okay. to come up with. Yeah, so uh, this was interesting. Mylan announced after several days of being in in the headlines and not enjoying it um, that they would launch their own generic version of the EpiPen in a matter of weeks. You know, this is what's called an authorized generic, which means it's going to be exactly the same thing as the brand name drug, except with a different with name a different on name. the label. Yeah. yeah. And so they can pretty much get that on the market fast because it's going to be the same as the regular EpiPen. It's a weird thing to do when you don't have generic competition. Companies do it a lot when there are a few generics on the market and they know that the doctors and pharmacies are going to Dole, you know, prescribed generics and not the brand name. Right. But when they there isn't generic competition, it's really unusual. But they were bowing to all this pressure and all these headlines where people were angry. Yeah, uh, this is Detroit today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Allison Kojak, uh, health policy correspondent for NPR. Uh, we're talking about uh, the EpiPen, uh, synonymous with Kleenex in the allergy medicine <laughs> world. Uh, something that uh, is. Uh, so widely used that it's synonymous with the product itself. Prices for the EpiPen have risen 500% over a seven-year period, which means uh, that uh, the shot now costs hundreds of dollars for a single use, which puts it out of reach uh, of many people. We're talking about uh, drugs, drug prices, and drug regulation. Do we need to approach this question differently in America? Uh, 313-577-577. 1019 is the number to join the conversation. Again, 313-577-1019. And I want to uh, welcome uh, somebody else here to uh, the conversation. Jordan Else is a nurse practitioner and mother of a toddler with allergies who is dealing with these high prices for the EpiPen. Jordan, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Allison. So I just want to tell a little bit about, um, you know, my story that we've gone through with my son. Uh Um, It began a few months ago. We were up at our cottage. He was eating egg, and um, luckily I wasn't home. My husband used to be a paramedic, and his eyes swelled shut while he was eating. So he's eating egg, and my husband quickly gives Benadryl. I for sure would have been at the ER, but it had calmed down, and we called the pediatrician, and 
of course, they said that our next step was to schedule an appointment with an allergist, and luckily we were able to get in with a couple of weeks. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm by no means any expert in this. I'm very new to the diagnosis, and though I am a nurse practitioner, my field of practice is very different from allergies. I practice in addiction medicine, so this is new for me, and I'm learning this as a parent rather than a healthcare provider. Um, so we go into the allergist, and they do the traditional skin testing where they poke them with a bunch of needles and if anyone's ever had this done it's pretty traumatic Um, it's even more traumatic when your child's one and you have to hold them down while they're screaming Um, so we get the diagnosis they come in and they say it looks like egg and peanut Uh, we'll send you for some lab work and and determine a little bit more about what it is and we go to the lab and find out that it's all nuts so there's kind of where we start Um, You know, after you've held your child down screaming, it's hard to kind of absorb that information. And and so they didn't give us a whole lot of educational information at that visit, but they did give us a prescription for an EpiPen. So, of course, we take that to the pharmacy, and um, the cost is really high, as we've been talking about. For us, it was $600 after our insurance had paid. The cash rate everywhere was well over $800 just for the two-pack. Wow. Yeah, so really crazy. So as Allison had mentioned, you know, there's this generic alternative, but never is this mentioned. So we go to the pharmacy, and of course I turn to uh, where we all turn when we have questions these days, Facebook, right? And I post, how does everyone get their EpiPens? Please save me some money. (laughs) And while our family is really fortunate and could pay that 600 you know, he certainly didn't want to. Here we don't even know. He's never had an anaphylactic reaction, uh, though he has had the facial swelling, so I do know that he's uh, at high risk for it next, next time around. And uh, so I get a coupon, $100 coupon. I send my husband, go back to the pharmacy. I think this is going to say zero copay. This will take care of all of it. It's a $100 coupon, as I said. So it only took about $100 off. Uh, So while this is all going on, I'm getting responses from people on Facebook, and we just decide to hold off for the night. And someone on Facebook suggests uh, GoodRx, which is an app that you can save uh, money on prescriptions. I recommend that to my patients all the time, but of course when you're a parent and you're a mother and, and you're not the healthcare provider, you don't think the same way. <laughs> and so there I am going, oh, why didn't I think of this? So I, I go and I look on the GoodRx and this, this generic that Allison just mentioned, the AdrenaClick, and there's even uh, more, a generic of the generic, is actually <laughs> much, much cheaper, uh, which it's $192 with their information. Uh, but you have to give their information to the pharmacist instead of your insurance. So you're kind of bypassing your insurance, uh, which isn't allowed with some insurances. So Medicare and other insurances don't really allow this type of savings, but fortunately we were in that privately insured group that does. Um, and, and that was another thing that was really frustrating. Yeah. Is my husband and I own a small business as well. We insure ourselves. Uh, we pay a lot of money every month, well over $1,000 for insurance for our family of four. And, and here we were with little to no coverage, it felt like, on this particular medication. So we got the generic. Uh, I go to my doctor. I give him the update, and I say, hey, just so you know, I'm a healthcare provider, and uh, not that I want to tell you how to run your office, but just, just so you know, this happened. And we had called the office and asked for other suggestions, and they said there weren't any. And I found this online, and I think that, you know, parents uh, need to know about this. Yeah. My concern is that we have those, those health disparities, and we have people who don't have these resources and don't have this knowledge that are going without. And I actually met someone like that yesterday. I was at the dentist and our dental assistant um, there who I've become kind of close with and talked about lots of things with her sister. Her daughter recently had a reaction about two weeks ago. She went to the pharmacy and she literally can't afford the $400 copay. So they're going without. What what do they do? I mean, what's the the option there? Good question. So so she's going without. She doesn't have the money. Um, Luckily, I had the information that I, I had found out and what I had paid for it. Here's the big kicker. Since all of this has gone on, 
they're on back order everywhere. So I called a Adrena couple of Walgreens. What's that, Allison? The Adrenaclick is on back order? Yeah, this generic of the generic is, is on on back order. So I called Walgreens yesterday just to actually get an additional copy of my receipt because since I have found another $100 coupon through Lineage Therapeutics that I've heard can work on top of the 192 from GoodRx. So that would make the cost for the kids $92 um, for the two-pack, which is tremendous. Wow. But the Walgreens that I talked to, um, he told me that they're on back order for at least 30 days. So I don't know how many Walgreens that's affecting, yeah, or yeah. if that's nationwide. But that's you know that's the other thing we're I mean, going to run into. And the, I mean, the, the, I guess the big picture uh, issue here is this uh, again. I mean, uh, what I can hear in your voice, uh, Jordan, is this sort of uh, strain and and desperation at the at the prospect that um, you know that your child may not be able to get medicine that they need, uh, and obviously. In your case, you've been able to to figure that out, but but lots of other people. Um, yeah, absolutely. Aren't. I mean, that's that's what's scary to me too. And obviously, as a healthcare provider, I advocate to get my patients medication, and I want them to have it. And and you know, the the further part of that was that we went back to the allergist, and he explained that they do not prescribe the generic in his office traditionally. And the quote that he used was actually that most doctors in his office will not even write you a prescription for it. Right. And his, did he his, give you a reason for that? Did, so here's here's a really interesting thing. Um, he said that the quote the failure rate is too high, and unfortunately, I didn't really think to ask in the moment what does that mean. So of course, me being the nerd and researcher that I am, came straight home and I'm googling for hours trying to find something. <laughs> right? I can't find anything about these things failing. I have posted in my food allergy parent groups, of which there's you know fifteen thousand parents in a group. No one says anything about ever having a failure rate. What I can't find online is lots of doctors voicing their opinion that in the moment of a crisis, this generic, which requires one extra step and works a little bit differently than the the EpiPen that we're traditionally used to, you have to remove two caps instead of one, and you have to hold it for 10 seconds into the thigh. So there's a couple of differences. His rationale, I'm guessing, would be that in, in time of crisis, that would be too different, and people who have been trained on the EpiPen would not know how to use this. Now, of course, we're starting fresh. I've trained all of our sitters. Our family members have all watched the video. It doesn't seem all that difficult, and I certainly couldn't find any research yeah. to say this isn't as safe or as effective. And so that was really disappointing. So what did I do? Of course, I called the doctor's office back, and I say, please send me some research so I can make an educated decision. I have yet to receive anything. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that's kind of where we are. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Allison, uh, how hard are doctors pushed to push specific drugs and not generics? That seems like another tension that uh, is coming out in, in Jordan's story here. Um, I don't know how much they're pushed externally, but there are formularies that the various um, insurance companies will have about what they cover. And doctors do at least mostly try to make sure that the drug that they prescribe to you is covered. Covered doesn't necessarily mean you get a low price, though, as Jordan mentioned. Um, So EpiPen, uh, Mylan has deals with most of the big insurers. So that EpiPen is really on all the formularies. Um, I have heard, although I have not done my own research on this, that AdrenaClick is less often on the formulary. So that could be one of the issues. And AdrenaClick, because it's not a generic 
of the EpiPen can't be substituted in at the pharmacy. You would have to have an actual prescription from your doctor. Yeah. I mean, the other issue is just everyone knows the name EpiPen. So when a doctor is prescribing, the doctor thinks EpiPen. And the patient often thinks EpiPen. So in that sense, you know, people ask for it and they get prescribed it. And for the vast majority of people, if they have good insurance, they're paying, you know, $50. It's the the more uh, common, it's it's more common now to have a high deductible than it was a few years ago. So that's probably why this is coming up now more than it did. Yeah. Uh, we've got a lot of callers here uh, asking uh, really good questions. So I want to I get to them. Uh, Kevin in Royal Oak. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hello? Yep. Go ahead, Kevin. Hey. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I was reading this about in the Wall Street Journal the other day. The FDA has turned down three different generic mechanical equivalents of EpiPens in the last few years. The FDA is the problem here. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, uh, a great point to, to raise. Uh, Allison, talk about why the FDA has been slow to approve uh, generic alternatives here. Well, um, there is one um, that is partway through the approval process, and the FDA did give it a sort of bad midterm review, however you want to call that, because it was not as reliable as the EpiPen, according to, or reliable enough. I don't know that they compare it to the EpiPen. Um, And so that drug, it will probably go on the market sometime next year, according to the company that's making it. There was another one called AviQ, which was pulled from the market in the last year, um, again, because it was not delivering reliable doses of epinephrine every time it was used. I haven't seen research comparing those uh, the reliability of those to the EpiPen reliability, but EpiPen is obviously on the market now, and nobody has said that w- that one is uh, offering unreliable doses. So, you know, it, apparently it does a better job. So of it's not necessarily that the F- it's not necessarily that the FDA is uh, being obstinate or standing in the way. I mean, they're doing their job, which is to make sure that uh, the drugs they approve are not dangerous and and do the job that they that they say they're going to do, right? Yeah, I would guess so. I mean, I don't think they just are willy-nilly pulling things off the market. Right. Uh, let's go to Terry in Novi. Terry, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thank you. Uh-huh. Um, Allison, the question I had, and I think you partially answered it um, from this uh, previous question, but I was just wondering where the competition was. Typically, if there's a demand, the marketplace steps up uh, with you know co- competitors, and that helps drive you know prices down are other patents involved is it or is it just the technology that other people can't duplicate yeah it really is the tech yeah it is it's a this is an interesting thing because it is the technology the epinephrine is really cheap and you could buy a syringe and the epinephrine and if you knew how to do a proper injection and dosage you know anybody could you know give themselves a a shot of epinephrine um with a prescription um and it wouldn't cost that much however the epipen is pre-measured and it's simple to use you press it against your thigh it injects the medication into you and it's a it's a set dose um and that's the technology and that is the thing that apparently these other companies that have been trying to make a generic version of the EpiPen or a competitive a competitor to the brand name are having trouble uh copying yeah okay Allison Kojak health policy correspondent with uh, NPR Jordan Allison nurse practitioner 
and mother of a toddler with allergies. Thank you both for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, Up next, we're going to continue talking about medical issues here in the city of Detroit. uh, Talk about who suffers the most when life-saving medication prices patients out. Medical inequity is a huge issue here in the city of Detroit. We'll talk about it next with the executive director and health officer of the city of Detroit. Stay with us on Detroit Today. News. Stories that impact your lives. Culture. And the music you love. With a little Motor City flavor. I'm 1019 WDET. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. We're going to continue our conversation about uh, life-saving medication, the prices that people are paying for it, and and make it a more local conversation now with Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. He is the executive director and health officer uh, for the Detroit Health Department, uh, runs the health department here in the city of Detroit. And he and I have talked before about the issue of medical inequity and how prominent it is in the city of Detroit. You talk about uh, the deep poverty that we deal with. You talk about uh, the isolation that people live with here. And those things play out in the world of medical access, uh, affordability, uh, all of the things that we were talking about in the other segment uh, from a national perspective, I think look worse, uh, are more glaring in a city like Detroit. So welcome to Detroit Today, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so first, let's start with the, the question of, of cost of medication. In the first segment, we were talking about this EpiPen uh, price elevation over the last uh, seven years, 500% for life-saving medication. In a city like Detroit, hundreds of dollars for a single a shot of uh, epinephrine is is just beyond what what people would be able to pay. Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, it was interesting listening to uh, the conversation and the the last set of callers. Um, you know what other countries, and I, I know focusing on Detroit, but what other countries um, with similar means, other high income countries have been able to figure out is that really at the end of the day, there are only two natural ways of regulating a price in a market. The first is that you only have one buyer. Uh, which is called a monopsony. Single pair. Exactly. Sure. And the other is that you only have one seller, um, which is a monopoly. And, you know, compared to uh, the, the UK or Canada, uh, where they are able as a government to say, hey, look, we're going we're gonna to pay this much or charge this much uh, for a particular drug. Uh, because what they've come to understand is at the end of the day, if you have inequalities in society, uh, those inequalities are fundamentally going to manifest in, in health inequalities insofar as you have a system uh, that can marginalize certain people out because they just simply cannot afford the medication. And when you're talking about medications that are fundamentally life-changing, you are now creating the circumstance within which people are exposed uh, in ways that really can end a life. Yeah. And so, um, you know, in those systems... It's dangerous. Exactly. exactly. And, it's, and it's a deprioritization of people's lives uh, in favor of money. I mean, in the crudest terms, this is uh, putting profit before human life. And, and, and that's, the, that's the challenge, right? Is that when we talk about markets, markets work for a lot of really great things. If I see a pair of sneakers I really like, um, you know, I, I can decide <laughs> that I want to spend my money on that pair of sneakers. But if I don't get them, it's not going to end my life. Right. And so at some point, we, we have to be honest about the fact that uh, medications and even healthcare 
really don't fit market systems very well simply because at the end of the day, there are two realities here. The first is that if you don't get access to them, it has life-changing, life-altering consequences. And the second is that at the end of the day, as buyers, we don't actually know what we want. Um, right. You know, when, I, when, when, when you go to the doctor, the doctor tells you what he thinks you need and then you get it from the doctor, which creates a, a bit of a conflict of interest. And so if you don't have a system within which uh, that doctor is kept honest about uh, about the need and you leave it simply to a market, you have a whole lot of market inefficiencies that drive weird cost issues, uh, allow companies like Mylan to to jack up the price of a, of a life-saving drug um, 500%. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier that other countries have figured out uh, how, to, how to deal with this problem, either on the supply side or on the demand side. Uh, some people say that we have that same ability with uh, Medicare and Medicaid, which are the largest buyers of drugs uh, uh, in the country. What, what holds us back from having that kind of effect on the market well, here? Yeah, your, your last expert, I think, said it really well. So we, in theory, you know, Medicaid, between Medicaid and Medicare, they're buying about 50% of the health care that, uh, that is, quote unquote, sold in America. The problem with that, though, is that because of the power of uh, many of the hospital and or physician and or um, uh, drug lobbies, uh, we have basically neutered the capacity for Medicare or Medicaid, the government uh, overall, um, to actually do what a natural buyer would do, which is negotiate. So if you are go to the Eastern market, we see some vegetables we really like, you can say, I'm going to buy at this price and I'm not going to buy at that other price. But at this point, we have the government that spends 50% um, of all the healthcare dollars spent. It's just fundamentally not allowed to ask for a different price. Um, and, and that's what allows drug prices in particular, but also the costs of, uh, of health care more generally to be as high as they are in the United States. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dr. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He is executive director and health officer here at the city of Detroit, runs our health department. We are talking uh, about drug prices and uh, how they are pricing some people out of life-saving medicine, uh, also talking about how medical inequity plays out here in the city of Detroit, a predominantly African-American, largely poor community uh, that sees different results and consequences uh, in the health sphere as a result of those things. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. 313-577-1019. Dr. El-Sayed, I want to talk about uh, race and class here in the city of Detroit and how they aggravate uh, health health issues here. Um, is it... Let's, let's talk first about the connection between the two. In other words, uh, the fact that Detroit is so poor, the fact that Detroit is so overwhelmingly African-American, when you look at the sort of systemic drivers behind that poverty, behind uh, the segregation uh, of African-Americans in the city, uh, I think it's not uh, difficult then to draw a line from that to the, the systemic uh, racism sort of causing the health disparities and gaps that we see here in Detroit. That's absolutely right. Um, Oftentimes, we, we blame health inequalities on the health system, uh, on its incapacity to provide certain levels of care. But really, the biggest levels of health inequalities that we see, and just, just to, 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 to make it very plain what we're talking about, 
there's about a 10 to 15 year spread um, in the life expectancy difference between uh, African American and white men across the country. And um, in places like Detroit, unfortunately, we see that if, you know, relative to a white man in Oakland County, uh, an African American man in the city of Detroit uh, can expect to live something like 12 years shorter. Um, and it's not necessarily only about what happens in the healthcare system, because oftentimes the healthcare system is about rescuing a problem. Yes. You don't go to the doctor most of the time. Uh, when you're healthy, you go most of the time when you're ill. Um, and it's more about the causes of illness to begin with. What is it about um, what we call a syndemic? So a syndemic is two diseases that go together between uh, poverty and, 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 and racism uh, as well as poor health. And we see that both of them cause each other. So um, one can understand um, the, the, the impact of, of experiences of racism, whether they be on a macro scale, the capacity uh, to get a job and to provide food um, uh, for one's family, or on a micro scale, the experience of having somebody pull one's purse when, when you walk by her. Um, uh, th those imp impacts create a certain amount of psychological trauma and a certain sure. amount of stress that manifests itself uh, in a number of, of, of disease consequences, including obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Um, but then the other part of that is also that, um, that poor health also drives poverty. Um, uh, and, and, and can drive some of the oppression that we see. So insofar as we know that our children are, are less likely, for example, to be able to see a blackboard in school, uh, or our children are, are less likely uh, to be able to, um, uh, to get through childhood uh, without having been exposed to lead, uh, or that our children are less likely uh, to have been um, uh, to, to, to get through childbirth without being born preterm. Sure. All of those things are going to have long-term implications for uh, the capacity to live um, in society at a certain wealth um, and income level, which then perpetuates the cycle. Um, and so healthcare uh, is an important aspect of that. The way one is treated the doctor, the likelihood that one has access to uh, certain medications, that matters. Um, but the bigger question that at least we're asking from the health department is, how can we interrupt that intergenerational poverty by focusing on those health outcomes, particularly among young children, um, that can that can drive that disparity over time? Yeah, and, and intervening is the key. But And it sounds like, well, okay, we'll just go do that. But it's really pretty difficult, right? It's, it's really difficult. The, you know, the difference between public health and, and medicine is that uh, medicine is the art and science of, of diagnosing and treating disease in an individual. Um, and it's a really noble and important field. Um, but public health is what we as a society do collectively to create the conditions within which people can be healthy. And so it really takes a certain amount of collective action, um, thinking about the kind of society within which we want to live. Um, it takes us thinking about how we build health into places, uh, the kinds of access to things like groceries and, 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 and green leafy vegetables uh, or access to walkable spaces um, that then pr promote, and promote health and prevent disease, um, which is far harder to do than treating disease because the reality is is that before disease manifests, you really don't know who's going to get it. Um, and so it really is about focusing on place and creating uh, a suite of policies and programs and partnerships and public engagements uh, that allow us to do that effectively and efficiently. It yeah. is a societal change yes. um, and one that takes all of us playing our part. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Lots of folks uh, want to chime in on these subjects. Uh, Matt and Westland, welcome to Detroit Today. Yes, thank you. Uh -huh. um, I worked for the health department 21 years ago, and they were the hardest working people I've ever worked with. I've been with the city for over 40 years now. Uh -huh. But we had a free pharmacy in the basement, and we had a free clinic over on the West End. And I'm just wondering if any of that exists anymore. Oh, great question, Matt. Thanks for uh, calling and uh, asking. Dr. Uh, El-Sayed, uh, are we still 
are we still doing things like that here in Detroit? So Matt, thank you so much for your service. Um, uh, so during uh, during the municipal bankruptcy in 2012, uh, the city made the decision to uh, to privatize its health department. In that process, we lost a lot of that uh, really great infrastructure, uh, like Matt's talking about. Um, uh, the good news is, is uh, after Mayor Duggan's election, his his understanding of of the health environment in Detroit. Um, he was able to recognize and, and really led the charge to rebuild that health department, and that's what we're doing now. And so while we've lost a lot of those um, really great programs, uh, the good news is we're on the way to, to being able to rebuild things like that. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Tim in Rochester Hills. Tim, welcome to Detroit today. Thank you. Yep. Nice to be able to join you. Sure. Uh, I do want to compliment the doctor on his well-stated comments regarding public health. Yeah. Uh, my comment is really more related to the earlier part of the conversation associated with the cost of medication. Uh, I'm a retired healthcare executive, spent 40 years in the industry, and one of the things I've noticed over the years is the creation of demand that Allison had referred to in relation to medication and, for that matter, medical devices. We are one of only three nations that allow the direct marketing of pharmaceuticals to patients. So while, yes, the doctor is responsible for writing the prescription, in reality, patients are showing up at the office saying, I need Asking for something specific, yeah. And, and it's even gotten to the point of medical devices that you now see related to cardiac condition. And if you, proof of this shows up in the watching your evening news every night. Count the number of pharmaceutical-related <laughs> commercials. Uh, commercials that are yeah, no, to a lot. the over 50 aged people who watch the evening news because we're the only ones who watch it. <laughs> so the, it, it is a demand-creating process, which clearly drives, obviously, pricing. Because right. once the demand is up, it's a great, companies it's, it's a great observation. whatever they want. It's a great observation, Tim. Uh, thanks very much for calling and making it. Uh, Dr. El Sayed, what role does that play? I mean, again, in other countries, you, you would eliminate that that effect by having either a, a single buyer or a single supplier, right? So, I mean, that's a that's a, a great point that um, that Tim brings up. Brings up is that um, you know generally we rely on uh, medical professionals and experts uh, to help us to understand and to diagnose the ailments that we have. Um, and what's happened is the pharmaceutical industry has recognized that they didn't necessarily just have to go to doctors um, uh, to tell them about the specific treatments that they're peddling. They realized they could go right to the customer, which creates a bit of a challenge because if, you're if your patient comes in uh, to you as a physician and says, hey, look, I think I have this problem and I think I need this drug. At that point, it becomes very difficult for a physician in the moment to say, actually, I don't think that's what you have. And I actually don't think you need this drug because that, that, that patient has gone from becoming a patient to a customer. Yes. And so if you're not giving them what they think they want, well, then they're going to go somewhere else. Yeah. And what that ends up doing is, is, as Tim says, it drives the demand, which increases the amount uh, of drugs being sold. And that not only increases the price for those who need it, uh, but beyond that, we have to ask ourselves about whether or not we want to be a society where um, where potentially a, a lot of those patients don't need that drug. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, and it gets to this point of, of sort of over-medicating in certain circumstances where in the end, what we really ought to be doing is thinking about how we prevent those ailments to begin with. Um, and so the business of medicine has really driven, I think, a lot of, um, a lot of unnecessary care 
uh, that shows up in, you know, talk to your doctor about X, and then you have the, the two minutes where somebody t- speaks unnaturally fast about all the things that the drug could do, right. but you don't hear that because now you're saying, <laughs> you know, I think I'm that patient. I'm like that guy who, who looks like he's feeling a lot better. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, Executive Director and Health Officer at the Detroit Department of Health. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, this is your, this is, we're coming up on your one-year anniversary here in the, the city of Detroit, and uh, we're going to have you back talk about how that year has gone, some of the things that you're doing, some of the really interesting programs. I know uh, we were talking before about uh, intervening in, in vision care in the schools, uh, getting kids who need glasses those glasses, right? That's right. Yeah. So again, we, we really want to be about um, interrupting the cycle of poverty in the city. How is it that we can uh, equip the next generation with um, the kind of health it needs to have to interrupt that cycle of poverty? And so it's allowed us to really focus on those outcomes that, um, that, are, that are critical. Um, things like uh, like infant health and like um, unintended pregnancy uh, and like um, vision absences. You know, an interesting statistic that I think we often forget is that 70% of justice-involved youth have a vision deficit. Wow. What that, we have to ask ourselves is, what is it that is concentrating that? And, right. and had those children been able to see the board in kindergarten or first grade, what would, ha- what would have happened in their lives? Would the outcomes have been different? Exactly. Yeah. And so we're trying to be very thoughtful and systematic about how we intervene, how we create, again, that context and that space um, that promotes the kind of health, that promotes the kind of uh, uh, social well-being that we all want for the city of Detroit. Okay. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, up next, if you love public media, you know this old house. We've got the guys from the show. They are here in Detroit working on a project. They're here in the studio next on Detroit Today.